thank you to Slack for supporting the Motley Fool's industry-focused financials podcast. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to www.slack.com to learn more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, May 1st, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me via the phone is John Maxfield, one of our financials analysts here at The Fool. How's it going, Maxfield? It's going great. Very happy to be with you, as always. Fantastic. I'm excited for today's show because we're doing a theme week um, that's kind of separate from the topic uh, of today's show, but I decided to marry them and marinate them a little, and it's just full of flavor for our listeners. I'm going to end that metaphor and get on to what we're actually talking about today. Um, today's theme is mysteries. Uh, but no, seriously, actually, today we're going to be talking about puzzles. Um, both an actual puzzle for listeners to solve and puzzles that banks are going to need to start solving in the near future. Um, make sure you listen all the way to the end to hear about our listener puzzle challenge. Uh, we're going to put that aside for now and turn to banking puzzles. And We have like these three big categories that we're going to talk about. The first is going to be Bitcoin and blo- blockchain technology. Um, we're also going to be talking about uh, big data and cloud, and we're also going to be talking about API stuff. Um, okay, so Bitcoin. Um, Maxfield and I are going to have a bit of a back and forth about this. This is kind of a new topic to both of us, so we're both learning. Um, bear with us. If anyone out there is a Bitcoin expert and we get something wrong, please write us a gentle email and we'll make sure to fix it in the next episode. <laughs> um, so, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is what they call a cryptocurrency, um, which is it's a digital currency. It's made. I guess is the word for it. It's mined actually um, by these computers that are basically solving math problems. Um, and in order to get one, and in the beginning, it was really easy to, to to get a Bitcoin. Like the problems were easier. But as time goes on, the problems become harder. And what's really interesting is that there's a cap on the total number of Bitcoins that can ever exist, which is 21 million. And right now, we're around 16.3 million Bitcoin in circulation at the moment. Um, which is really interesting. And Bitcoin is is you can you can buy one whole Bitcoin, right? Which I think the current price on Bitcoin is like last I looked it was like $1300. Um, which is a lot of money for one Bitcoin, but thankfully, oh, I just looked it up on the internet right now at on May 1st at 12:42 p.m. Eastern Time, Bitcoin is equal to $1446.41 US dollars. Which is a lot of money, but thankfully you don't have to spend an entire Bitcoin because that would seem that would be pretty excessive to pay that for one pizza. You can they, they can be split up up to a hundredth millionth of a Bitcoin, which is called a Satoshi, and that's the name of the person or potentially group of people who created the cryptocurrency. Um, much like someone who would create something, a cryptocurrency, this is a very cryptic individual, <laughs> and no one knows who he or she or they are. Um, so yeah, Bitcoin, very interesting. Do you have any questions so far, Maxfield? <laughs> you know what I think about when I think about in Bitcoin and, and blockchain technology more generally, and blockchain technology, again, and I am not an expert on this. I'm much more of an expert on, on banking as opposed to the technology side, but it's my understanding that the way the blockchain works, and this is in the context of Bitcoin too, 
um, is that kind of to your point, Gabby, you know, each time a transaction happens uh, to create or exchange uh, bitcoins, there is a some sort of large formula, complicated math problem that is solved, and then that ends, and then the next transaction that happens, that thing happens again, and then it happens again, and so that's kind of that blockchain kind of. That's kind of what that that's referring to. So, it, it, am, I so is that, am I understanding that correctly? No, that's actually a really good question. So blockchain technology is this other side of the, of the Bitcoin stuff. Um, the blockchain is actually just a public ledger. And on it, it contains um, a date that a transaction took place and the amount uh, that, that the transaction was for. But it doesn't contain any like personally identifying features to the for the transaction. So you don't know like who the two individuals were in the transaction. Um, and the way the blockchain works is that in order to exchange bitcoins, um, a computer has to be hooked up to this this bitcoin network and, and each computer becomes a node and each node has a um, a copy of the ledger basically downloaded to it and it's like updated fairly fairly regularly um, and that's like kind of like the price of being able to transact bitcoin. So that way there's this huge diffuse, Public ledger that it's really hard to to change to, to like hack it because even if you like get to a few computers on um, this like network, I guess you probably can't get to all of them, and eventually the correct ledger will pop back up again unless you somehow manage to get all of them at once. So, Bitcoin, as you might be starting to to understand, is a it's it's a very secure way of dealing with money and it's really interesting because it's not it's not exactly like the US dollar right like there's no like physical stuff really backing it it's just like it's it's one of these amazing things that humans do where they're like we have this thing you can't touch it it has value you know right well i mean and if you think about it it's like when you that when they talk about creating bitcoins they talk about mining them so in that respect it really is very analogous to say the gold standard where the quantity of currency that is in circulation at any one particular time is a function of how much gold they're pulling out of a mine but what's interesting kind of to your point about uh you know what's kind of different between you know bitcoin how they're created and gold standard is that there can always be more mines discovered but in the bitcoin arena your point, there is a, a lifetime cap in terms of the number of bitcoins that can be created. Is that is that right? Yeah, and so I think what you're getting at is that unlike gold, like we don't really know 100% exactly how much gold is in the world in mines that we can dig up, but we do know right. exactly how many bitcoins there are or could possibly be in the world. So th- right. it, it lends this like really hard cap. It, it gets into like this crazy economic theory. And listeners, if you're really interested in Bitcoin, I'm actually hopefully going to do an interview um, with an author uh, who specializes in Bitcoin in a couple weeks. Um, I'm still working with the publicist to, to figure out the details, but um, hopefully hopefully it all works out. But um, let's, let's kind of turn to why Bitcoin is a puzzle for banks. Um, one of the things about Bitcoin is that it's fast, cheap, or free and frictionless to transfer money to transfer this currency. Um, and 
banks and money transmitters, especially people like Western unions, they make a lot of money off fees of just like shuttling people's money around the world. Do you know how much the what the cap is for Western Union? Like what how much they can charge you for transmitting money for you? I'm guessing it's it's high given Western Union's reputation and who they serve. Nine percent of the yeah. amount that you send that you send. That's a lot of money. You know? Well, and even and even in the context of banking, if you think about how cumbersome checks and, and dollar bills are, I mean, going to an ATM to get dollar bills and then go and use that as a currency to transact when, when opposed to, like, you could just have this on your phone and you, you go to the store. So you take that whole middle thing out of it. And then the other, the other kind of point about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchains in the context of payments, because that's, I think that's really where, where this is going to impact banking significantly, is that so checks, right? You, somebody writes you a check, you go to your bank to deposit it. I mean, in this day and age with the technology that we have, and particularly like people like, you know, that bank at these huge, sophisticated banks that, you know, port, you know, billions of dollars every year in technology, still to this day, a check takes overnight to clear. Yeah. It's like, that's like, that's so absurd. But then the reason that it takes so long is because it's got to go through the Federal Reserve's system. And so the blockchain is kind of, and, and cryptocurrencies kind of provide potentially an end run around that because as soon as you make that payment transaction, it's my understanding, and in this is kind of what sounds like what you're saying, Gabby, is that there's an immediate update to that ledger, that kind of a, that open source ledger, um, and then it moves on to that next transaction. So kind of it may not happen like instantaneously, like in a nanosecond, but within a couple of minutes, which is significantly faster than than say overnight. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess that one of the things to know about Bitcoin is that the people who originally started it were a group that I think that they described themselves um, in a particularly endearing term as cypherpunks. So cypher because they were really into cryptology, and punks because they were like kind of against the system, man. Um, so one of their big things about about Bitcoin is that everyone is their own bank, and this decentralizes the banks and takes away power from the governments and like the military industrial complex or whatever. Um, not to sound dismissive, but like that that's kind of the philosophy about it behind it, and that's a huge problem for banks. If everyone can be their own bank, um, if the only thing you need the bank for is lending money, that takes away a lot of their fee income, which a lot of banks that's a big chunk of their income. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, if you talk to you know, kind of the the, real, the leading bankers, one of the things they'll tell you is that the way that banking is changing right now is it's transitioning from uh, you know institutions that store money to institutions that pro, kind of lord over the movement of money, right? You know, and this is the payment space, right? And so if you go into the into that Bitcoin arena or that cryptocurrency arena, the blockchain arena, where the payment structure can be, you know, can occur on the outside of, the, of, you know, banks, this, you know, really could potentially attack the fundamental, uh, you know, business purpose of banks in the future. And I think that's why when you hear people talking about things like, you know, is this an Uber, you know, are banks, you know, facing an Uber moment? To where you know new technologies will come in and completely disrupt the business model, I think blockchain is a, it plays a very major role in that. Yeah, um, one of the one of the things to think about too is that Bitcoin isn't this thing that's just going to take over overnight. Um, although it has spread very rapidly, um, which is that 
Bitcoin is still kind of struggling to figure out who and what it is. So I told you a little bit about the history and how it's like kind of this decentralized movement and people who are kind of libertarian in nature who are really excited about Bitcoin. But then, of course, there's also people who want to make money off of Bitcoin. And then, you know, there's the third party that's involved in any financial interaction ever in the United States, which is the federal government. And we don't really know what regulation is going to do to Bitcoin. Like, Bitcoin might be driven underground or it might become like an actual tool that it's easy for people to use in the United States. And a lot of that depends on what the federal government decides. And one of the, the major issues that they've run into in the past is their. The federal government's regulations surrounding know your customer and anti money laundering laws. Um, because one of the things about Bitcoin is that you don't need to know anything about the person you're sending money to. Like, you don't need to know their name, you don't need to know their address. And so it becomes very easy for illegal activities, at least in the eyes of the federal government, to occur. Um, the most notable incident being. Uh, Silk Road, I think that's the one that most people are familiar with, which is a, was an underground, deep web marketplace where people could buy things like drugs, and they would pay with Bitcoin because there was no way to trace who it was coming from and where to. Um, and that got shut down, and I'm sure a million iterations have sprung up since then. But it, it's a, it's a really interesting world that is very divorced from the reality that I think most Americans experience from a day to day. Yeah, well, and it's not even so much, you know, how I, this is how I see it. I mean, like, it's not even so much about Bitcoin, but about cryptocurrency. Like, Bitcoin can just be like the first one that kind of gained traction, but there, there will be different iterations of cryptocurrencies that improve on, you know, the ability to, you know, whether it's, you know, know your customer, track or determine whether there's money laundering is going on. You know, in order for this, type of thing to really catch on there's going to those issues are going to have to be addressed and that's why at the end of the day something will emerge in this area whether or not it's bitcoin itself you know it remains to be seen though it probably it doesn't look like it because of those point those those issues with it that you pointed out Uh, but something will come up you know something will come up in this area i mean it's just it's only a matter of time yeah, I mean it's it's kind of like who knows because a lot of the issues that the government has with Bitcoin, technically they have with cash too, right? The the, right. the, the only difference is that cash is really hard to if you're in Indiana send to Hong Kong, right? Well, Especially if it's a million that's dollars. A great point. You know? Yeah. Well, because and if you think about it, like <laughs> I have these, I had this friend who his parents were super. I think they were probably libertarian, and they didn't trust banks and so they kept they saved his money for college in cash and so they had i mean i think they had something like they had saved up a hundred thousand dollars in cash well one of the one of their sons got a scholarship to college a full ride scholarship to college so then they had a hundred thousand dollars in cash so then they started um depositing the cash into a bank in increments of like nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine dollars which is like one dollar below that ten thousand dollar threshold at which Point the banks have to disclose to the federal government that uh, maybe a suspicious, a presumptively suspicious transaction is going on, um, and so in, in, in the Bitcoin area, it could be a similar thing where it's like you could just set, you know, the government could just take care of it just by setting, you know, a threshold above that threshold, you know, an amount of bitcoins or amount of crypto, cryptocurrency. That then would trigger that would you know then trigger these regular you know the regulatory disclosure requirements 
but still you need to they would still need to sort out exactly how that would work yeah i mean right now there's i think there's a technology so a lot of where a lot of these um bitcoin startups got caught up was they were considered money transmitters by the federal government and they were considered to be operating outside the law and so a lot of them got shut down in the united states but there's one that has been operating for a while um where they literally just hold your bitcoins for you like they just help you create a wallet um, and if you forget your password, you're, I think, pretty much out of luck because they don't know what your password is. They don't know anything about you. They don't even know how many bitcoins are in your wallet. Like they just provide a service to help you do that. And like that completely falls outside of the existing regulation. Like no one knows what to do with them. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's definitely a puzzle for banks to think about and for the federal government to think about. And trust me, they are thinking. They actually recently denied the Winklevoss twins application to start a Bitcoin ETF. And it doesn't really sound like they want to to let anyone start an ETF because they're worried about fraud. So we'll see what happens. Um, one puzzle for people to figure out, a big puzzle for people in finance to figure out. Um, another one is uh, API. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what an API is? Yeah, so what an API, here's here's the best way that, that I have found to think about APIs. So APIs are, the, the name, the acronym stands for Application Programming Interface. And all that is, is it's basically a tube that connects, let's say, your bank to, say, a third-party app, like the Mint app. And then in that tube, Mint can pull data, pertinent data, to its customers from their Bank. And so that's what an API does. It, it connects those to a third outside third-party developer to a bank and allows information to flow over it. Well, here's the interesting thing about APIs. So if you like, if you look at what's going on in, in Europe right now, they are more advanced in, in, on the technological front in terms of the financial services sector than we are here. And one of the big movements they're pushing right now is to force banks and other you know, uh, companies in the payment space to use so-called open APIs. So closed APIs, like you know, if information needs to be exchanged, like within a bank between, say, the investment banking division and, and you know maybe the, the retail banking division or the corporate banking division, whatever that is, those are called closed APIs. Well, open APIs, they provide that highway to outside third-party developers, and they're, they're so the regulators in Europe are now starting to force banks and financial services companies to use open APIs in the payment space. And the thought process being that that is just kind of the beachhead and then open APIs will be used much more broadly in all areas of financial services. When this is a huge benefit because traditionally the way that apps like Mint would work is that you would, you know, the customers would have to go in, log into their, you know, log into the Mint account and then give Mint their usernames and their passwords for their banks. And then Mint, would then go, they would, Mint would, that app would then go and log into your bank account and then scrape the screen. So then just basically just copy the information from that screen and incorporate it into the Mint app. Well, an API allows a much more seamless transfer of data to, to take place. And so you're not going to have, you know, interpretation issues between, you know, scraping the data from the screen and then, you know, translating it into text, you know, in, in the Mint area. But here's the interesting thing about APS and and company and banks for a while were uh, opposed to that screen scraping technology. But now, because of the importance of and and the growth and proliferation of these third-party apps, banks realize that look like we've got to get in on this game. 
So J.P. Morgan Chase, they made news last year um, starting to use open APIs with Mint and other apps like that in particular. But here's the interesting here here's the interesting point about APIs. So if these the, if AP, open APIs really take hold and everybody starts banking through third party apps, and think about how convenient that would be if you could have an app that had all of your banking accounts, you know, your mortgage, your car your your car loan on there, um, all of your retirement funds, your credit card accounts from all these different accounts, all aggregated in one single place. So basically any customer at any one time had a constantly updating balance sheet that they could just pull up on their phone by tapping on an app. I mean, it, it would be revolutionary. But then if people can, ha- if there's, those apps are created, which there are some of those, and now there's still, there will be more and more and more, what will happen is that the question will become, will customers then be able to actually do banking, not just see their accounts, actually do conduct banking in these third-party apps where they can like deposit a check into their Chase account through their Mint app, right? And do all these different things to where not only are you putting Apple and Samsung's app store thereby between a customer and their bank, but you're also putting that third-party app between the customer and the bank, which thereby means that the bank itself and the bank's brand will erode further and further and further into the distance as these types of things are going. And so the question is, is, you know, what, how will that change the relationship between banks and their customers if there's always somebody standing in between the two? Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that banks are thinking about right now, even just in terms of like how many physical locations do they have, right? Like, uh, like you said, customers are increasingly moving to online platforms um and when you lose that personal touch like you're potentially also losing actual customers on the other hand customers really want that convenience um i was telling i was telling someone the other day about my experience trying to switch banks it's hard it takes it takes a lot of effort and it takes you going physically into the bank branch um in order to get all of your money out all at once um, after you've systematically slowly drained your accounts over months, at least in my case, um, it's not a pleasant experience. But if someone created an app that let you switch banks super easily, like people could do that, and banks wouldn't really have a lot of recourse. You know, like they would actually maybe have to change the way that they operate with customers in order to retain them. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up. I'd, I'd forgotten about it, and that that switching element, and that is one of the most important elements in the context of API. So banks traditionally have benefited from the fact that there are high so-called switching costs. So like, let's say you have a bank account and you set up your direct deposit. And you know how like when you set up accounts, the the bank is like all over you about setting up direct deposits and reminding you about automatic bill pay and all those types of things. And the reason they do that and, and, you know, trying to get you to bring you know, roll over your IRA at another bank into an IRA at, at, at your current bank and, you know, start, you know, uh, you know, get your car loan there. And the reason they do that is because the more and more of those tentacles that they put between or, you know, you know, strings that they put between the customer and the bank, the harder it is for them to switch. Because, you know, you have to detach all of those things. I mean, it's just, it would just be a nightmare, particularly for, and I don't know if this statistic is accurate or not, but I, I heard this statistic from a board member of a major bank. 
And he told me that at their bank, approximately 40% of customers lived paycheck to paycheck. So let's say if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you have direct deposit and automatic bill pay, bill pay you know, connected to your account, it becomes a very delicate dance to detach all those things, go to a different bank and not accrue an, an overdraft charge, right? Yeah. So the, the, the switching costs are really high. But to your point, if you can, if they come up with an app where you can just go in there and basically say like, you just switch all my accounts over to this other bank because I'm tired of this bank, you know, charging me overdraft fees or doing this or doing that, you know, like all these things that banks have been doing for all of these years against customers. I mean, it will it will completely erode that switching cost, which would change dramatically change the the competitive dynamics in the banking industry, where banks would actually have to really and and they they talk you know they pretend and they talk about treating their customers well today, but they would actually have to back that up with really substantial actions in the future in order in order to to combat the impact that open APIs could have on 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 lowering the switching cost. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, like you mentioned, th- th- the other thing is like when you have someone in person, it is way easier to just sell them something, right? It's way, right, it's way, yeah. it's way harder to sell someone a mortgage online because they have time to sit back and think and think about all their different options with mortgages. But like if you have them in the bank, it's way easier to be like, you know what, you really need another credit card, you know? Right. So it's yeah, a- and. and- yeah, and, and that's such a good point because if you look at you know one of the things that cross selling has gotten a bad name because of that Wells Fargo you know fake account scandal last year, which is understandably it's got it's got a bad name um, from that. But there's only a couple ways to grow a bank, and one of them is to cross sell customers, right? I mean, so so you you have to be able to do that, but you got to be able to do it appropriately. But if you don't have those interactions, then you're not going to have the opportunity to cross sell. So it, it's a major conundrum. Yeah, so this is this is another puzzle for the banks. Like, people are moving increasingly online. They also need to move increasingly online. They've, they've started to embrace this API technology because that's just kind of the way that the tide is turning. But how do they balance that with making sure that they are able to grow their businesses and retain customers? Something for them to think about. Um, something for us to think about is how grateful we are to Slack for supporting our podcast. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all of your team's communications in one place, making your working lives simpler and more productive. Slack reduces emails and can streamline your team's communication. Slack connects the tools and services you need in one place and allows you to organize your team with real-time messaging, video or voice calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives all in one easy-to-use app. Major companies regularly use Slack, such as Capital One, Electric Arts, Taco Bell, Autodesk, Lush Lush Cosmetics, and The Motley Fool. I actually use the service every single day, and sometimes on the weekends when my coworkers and I are trying to hang out outside of the office. Um, Slack also saves time and improves productivity. There's no more searching through emails for that one follow-up or searching through multiple systems to find what you're looking for. You can just search in that one handy search bar. Um, you don't even have to switch across multiple tabs or platforms to keep updated with work. Like It's just in this one system. It's also super easy and convenient. You can drag and drop file share, and it works with all the apps you already use, like Dropbox, Google Drive, and Trello. Plus, you can tailor Slack to your work with over 900 apps. Uh, and the other really nice thing, I guess for some people like me who are a little bit obsessed with work, um, Slack has a mobile app and for both iOS and Android that syncs seamlessly so you can always pick up where you left off no matter where you are. And you know what else is really great about Slack? We have a lot of remote contractors like Maxfield, and I can have real-time conversations with him 
with you <laughs> via Slack instead of cluttering up our respective email boxes. And I can also post documents and pictures for discussion, which is something you can't really do over the phone. It's like this kind of happy medium. It's like when my mom asks, asks me why I text instead of calling or like sending an email. It's like it, it's one of those things where you can like get someone's attention, but they don't have to respond to it right away. But they can also have like a really quick conversation back and forth with you. It's really it's just, I really, really like Slack a lot personally. Um, anyway, if you're interested, go to www.slack.com to learn more. That's slack.com. Thank you again to Slack for supporting us. Okay, uh, let's talk about big data and banks. Something that you wouldn't initially think might be a puzzle for banks, but could be. Um, so, big data, just in case you're not familiar with this, is this um, thing that's emerged now that we live basically our entire lives online and with easily accessible data is companies basically using it, mining through it to figure out trends and patterns, um, both for consumer groups like on a general level and also for consumers on an individual level. So like one of the things you might see are like, we saw you look at this one company and this other company might also, we saw you look at this, this outdoor brands company, you might also be interested in this other outdoor brand company, um, and like those ads follow you around the internet, or like you're suddenly getting emails and you don't even remember signing up for something, stuff like that. Yeah, and if you think about big data, I mean that there are few institutions that have more data at their disposal than banks. And thanks, in fact, a lot of bankers, you know, will talk about the fact that the future banking is not in money; it's in information. And you know, any. Just imagine, I mean, Google obviously has a lot of information. Amazon has a lot of information about, you know, purchasing your history. You know, Google obviously about your search history. But banks know what you spend money on, right? They know what everybody spends money on. So they, they, so they know what people buy, you know, spending money on, on and Amazon. You know, and, and while people may be, you know, doing searches on Google, they're actually making the purchases via their banks. So, so that information you know, is incredibly valuable. But the problem that banks have had is just because of the way that the bank industry has developed in the United States, you know, first, you know, banks weren't allowed to operate multiple branches in most states, and then they were also were not allowed to bank across state lines. What happened was that you just had this, just thousands and thousands and thousands of banks, uh, small little banks all over, all over the United States. And then when those uh, do you, those regulations around you know banks getting together and you know banking over in, in, you know offering services over interstate lines and through branches and et cetera et cetera, once that opened up, then you had this huge consolidation movement, and so banks buying other banks, buying other banks, buying other banks, buying other banks, and then pretty soon you have your big four banks like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Citigroup uh, that are excluding Citigroup that are basically hundreds and hundreds of banks that have been rolled up into one. Well, the problem with that is that each of those individual banks that were acquired or merged into these huge organizations had data, and they used different systems, different uh, software to record and analyze that data. Different, they stored it in different places. Um, they stored it on you know, antiquated main, mainframes and things like that. So you think like, oh, well, a bank should like be able to, you just, a person at a bank should just be able to like go onto the computer and just like type in like, what accounts does John Maxwell have? And it shows all different accounts that I have across, you know, you know, that banking company. But the fact of the matter is because of that, that situation with all this data dispersed all over the place, 
it is taking a long time for banks to really wrangle all the data that they have uh, at their disposal. And so that is where they're at right now. And to tie this kind of into that API conversation, where big data is so valuable outside of kind of the risk and compliance area, which, which is extremely you know, valuable to kind of you know, track customers, see, you know, making sure that they're, doing, uh, they're not doing inappropriate things with money. The other area where it comes in really handy is in, is in that cross-selling area. And the, and the reason is because once a bank gets its arms around its data, it can then determine not only you know, which, you know, the, which products each customer has, but they can look at the transaction history of that customer and determine, say, if this customer would really benefit from, you know, a, another a, a brokerage account or, or a specific retirement account or another credit card. And then they can kind of see which customers will have those those needs and then pitch those specific products to those customers, which really dramatically increases um, your cross-sell ratio yeah, and, um, and the revenue you derive from each customer. And it's not just that. Like, If they get organized enough, they could, and if this is legal, which it might not be in the future, I don't think there's really laws around it right now, banks could sell like packages of data or like make some sort of agreement with outside retailers and say, like, I know that Gabby LaPera really likes swimming. Why don't you sell her a pool? Or swimsuits, or whatever it is, and like they can do integrated ads in the bank app, which is on the API. <laughs> um, and I, so, that, like, those are all things that, that they could potentially do, and that could be a major source of money for them. That's how a lot of com- that's how Facebook makes a lot of its money, right? Like, it tracks you around and lets uh, businesses serve ads to of websites that you that you recently visited. Um, that could be yeah, a, that it, could be huge. Yeah, and and the credit card companies, you get they're already they've already made a significant amount of progress in this regard. Like if you look at you know kind of a Bank of America's reward for their credit card, the Bank of America card, and they have individualized rewards programs for customers that can be tailored based on a customer's transaction history. And and the benefit there would be that if a bank, let's say you know as we were talking before the show, Gabby, like let's say they know that you love Chipotle. And it's within a bank, and so they have, let's say, you know, 10 million customers who go go to Chipotle, whatever it is, once a week. They can go to Chipotle and be like, "Look, like you want," because one of the things Chipotle is trying to do right now is keep get people to come more frequently to their stores after that whole issue that they had last year with foodborne illnesses. Well, Bank of America could go to Chipotle. They could say, "Like, look, like we have 10 million customers who go to your restaurants once a week. Why don't we give them a? Why don't we send a coupon to them?" and see if we can get them to go more frequently. And the benefit to banks would be that the more transactions that are processed. So, you know, the person, if I get a coupon Chipotle, rest assured I'm going to use it. You know what I mean? So that, and, and I probably would, that would probably encourage me to go to Chipotle more frequently, which means that I would conduct another transaction. And banks make money on those transactions from interchange fees. So, so I mean, there's a number some, of different ways do. that it they depends. can use it yeah. to generate revenue. Yeah, no, it's def- definitely really interesting. Side note, Chipotle, not Chipotle. <laughs> uh, I know, I know. I know, they got I you on that last time, like too. Years. Yeah. Listeners, yeah. listeners, it's not his fault. It's if you say it one way for years and years, it's really hard to break out of that habit, man. Um, so, so don't get mad. Don't write us emails about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. It, it, it has boundless potential. But then if they do figure out how to do this and... The federal government okay's it. 
they have a puzzle before them, which is figuring out a way to do this without alienating people, right? And also, even if they do figure out a way to do it, if the federal government hasn't caught up with them, figuring out a way to do it without breaking the law. Because there are a lot of laws surrounding like what banks can do with your personal information, right? Like, I don't think they could sell your name to to an, to a different company, um, but you know, like if they could figure out a way to protect your information and sell you the ads, like there, there's a lot of potential challenges for them here. Um, and I don't know about you, Maxfield, but sometimes I get really, really annoyed when ads follow me around the internet. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just not going to get on Facebook for three days because I don't want to see these fuzzy, Gucci loafers anymore. I'll send you a picture. I swear to God, if you email me, industryfocusatfool.com, they're hideous. Um, and I warn you, you will be followed around the internet for days by them. Um, <laughs> not to make it personal or anything. Um, <laughs> but, by Gabby's shoes. <laughs> you trailed by Gabby's shoes. Oh my gosh. I just, I don't understand. Like someone sent them to me to be like, haha, look at these shoes. And I clicked on them and now they won't leave me alone. Um, but anyway, so there's a lot of, a lot of things to chew on there. And then the last thing I want to hit super quick, cause we are running way over is cloud banking. Um, which is basically the banks letting other services like Amazon or Google host their data centers, um, which is cheap, cheaper for the banks. Then the banks have all of their own data easily at their disposal. Um, but there are potential problems with it, right? Like, for example, Amazon Web Services went down earlier. Was it this year or was it last year? I can't even remember. And it was down for like a whole day. You know, that's no good. Yeah. I mean, and, and the big benefit, I mean, cloud cloud banking it's good we left it last and we, we, we doesn't really take any time because it's really it's kind of boring but basically <laughs> what it allows banks to do is it allows banks to basically shut down their data centers and outsource that to larger companies like Amazon Microsoft IBM so it's just a huge way to save money and when you consider how much data banks have um, it is something that I mean that bank like JP Morgan Chase if they eventually switch you know shut down the majority of their data centers and go over to to you know, an Amazon Web Services, it's hard to say how much they could save, but I mean, you're you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, maybe even you know billions of dollars over a stretch of time. Yeah, but the the puzzle to for them to think on is security there because they're letting other people run their security, so it's just something that they really need to think about and something that they need to make sure that they keep because that's why customers stay with them is because they feel banks are doing a good job of protecting their data and their money, um, and if they don't. Um, it's it's just it's just no good. Anyway, we don't have all the we don't have all the time in the world, and we definitely don't have all the answers in the world. But these are all things that we think that you guys should watch in this space. Um, and that's really it for the for the analysis part of the show. Um, but as I mentioned at the beginning, we have a special special thing for our listeners this week. Uh, we love games at Fool HQ. Puzzles and challenges are a really big part of how we team build and spark collaboration at the Fool. And we love them so much that we have a chief collaboration officer, which is really hippy-dippy, but super cool. Um, is our, we have our own resident puzzle master named Todd Edder. Uh, this week, we wanted to let listeners in on some of the fun that we have in the office and give them a taste of one of Todd's challenges. So we asked him to put together a puzzle for you guys. Um, every day this week, each host will wrap up the show with a clue, and the answer to that clue is a company name, and the company names from Monday through Friday will all fit into a final puzzle that will be revealed on the Friday Tech Show. So if you want to solve the whole thing, you need to listen to every episode this week. 
And what do you get for jumping through all of our clue hoops? Uh, the first 10 listeners to shoot us an email after Friday's show with the five company names and the final answer will get full swag. So just the company names. We don't need any of the other answers to the clue. Five company names and the final answer. Okay, so if you're ready, here is today's financial clue. Take the common name of a financial company. Add a letter to the front to get something you might get at KFC. Add another letter in front to get a word to describe someone in debt. Add one more letter to the beginning to get an activity a homeowner might do on the weekend. What is the financial company? You guys ready? One more time. Take the common name of a financial company. Add a letter to the front to get something you might get at KFC. Add another letter in front to get a word to describe someone in debt. Add one more letter to the beginning to get an activity a homeowner might do on the weekend. What is the financial company? Anyway, starting Friday, if you solve every clue, write into industryfocus at fool.com with the email subject line puzzle and the answers. Also, make sure to tell us your t-shirt size. If you're stumped and want the reveal, on May 12th, we'll post them to the Motley Fool Podcast Facebook group and the Industry Focus Twitter account. To enter this contest, there is no purchase necessary, and the contest is open to all legal residents of the United States and Canada, excepting residents of the Providence of Quebec over the age of 18. Employees, affiliates, and contractors and their families of the Motley Fool LLC or any of their affiliates are not eligible. Void were prohibited by law. For a complete list of contest rules, visit puzzle.fool.com. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Super glad we're done with the legal language, because now I can slow down. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Thank you to Austin Morgan. Have you solved the puzzle yet, Austin? I have not. Why not? You've had like 30 whole seconds. Um, And thank you to everyone else for joining us. Everyone have a great week.